Well, a couple of weeks ago, I had the great good fortune of sitting down and getting a chance to talk to Larry Uffelman. He's a professor of Victorian literature and specifically a specialist in Elizabeth Gaskell, who was a contemporary of Charlotte Bronte. And this is edited down and condensed here for your listening pleasure, our conversation. And from this, I think you can extrapolate some really interesting stuff about the Brontes and when they lived, and also get some fabulous ideas for future books on Craft Lit and just the books. Here's our conversation. So, well, first off, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk to me, because I know this is, this is a different world of technology than the one that you, you live in every day. But let's see, since last we actually communicated, I finished my enormous tome on the Brontes, and that included the last, I'd say the last 200 pages. Your uh, area of specialization, Miss Gaskell, featured quite prominently. And so I got to read a lot of her letters, not just between the Brontes, between Charlotte Bronte and, and, and her, but also between her and her publisher. She was quite a savvy interesting piece of work who gaskell gaskell oh yeah yeah she's she's a an interesting woman and a and a real professional writer yes and professional in the professional in the sense that she wrote to to earn money it's <laughs> <laughs> uh, a nice byproduct. she and she well you know she was married to a unitarian clergyman uh, and According to the sort of mythology that surrounds them, after uh, the death of a child, he suggested to her that she try try writing to sort of as a sort of therapy, and she did, and produced Mary Barton, that first novel. Wow, that was her first. And after and and after that, you know, found that she she liked doing this, and she had stories to tell. She was known as a as a storyteller before she ever wrote. You know, she told stories to her family, to her children, to the children of friends, to other friends, and so on. And then she started writing these down and uh, discovered uh, that she could she could earn enough money to allow her to travel abroad. And she did that. That's pretty impressive for that time period. Isn't yeah, it, yeah. She was a she was she was a real uh, entrepreneur uh, in fiction. That's that's really impressive, and that's. That's kind of the feel that I got from her, because she kind of, in in some ways, not not the way I expected, but in some ways, she very much took Charlotte under her wing, and helped her understand, I think, the the business side of writing better, which is a godsend because Charlotte didn't have a clue. But the well, ne- yeah, neither of the neither Emily nor nor Charlotte had much. Uh, well, they had no no way of <laughs> gaining that knowledge. You know, they were living up there in the rocky hills of Yorkshire, and very likely, among other things, speaking a Yorkshire dialect, which didn't translate very well into the language of the South, which is the language or the the form of English that that was being published. Now, where so, was where was Gaskell? Where was she from originally? Do you remember? She was born born in Nutsford. Uh, which is near Manchester, and then when she married, she and her her husband took a church in in Manchester, and she spent the rest of her life uh, there, uh, just just down the block from uh, Engels and some of those people who became known later on for their communist literature. <laughs> 
Well, now that brings up some interesting stuff. When you remember that, that Engels wrote The Condition of the Working Classes, I mean, he may have been, been German, but he was writing about conditions in Manchester. And so was Gaskell. And, well, in Charlotte Bronte's book, Shirley, and Gaskell's book, she had a couple of them, I think, that were very much focused on the, on the, the troubles that the working class was experiencing at that right. time. How, aside from Dickens, who's very famous for, you know, are there no workhouses, was it a thing at the time to be writing this kind of socially forward-thinking, critical fiction? Or were they really outside the norm when they were doing that? Well, a little of both. Um, but, uh, uh, no, uh, Gaskell uh, was writing uh, sort of reformist, reformist novels, um, and so was, so was Dickens. And they were, the conditions they were writing about were real. They were caused by conditions in factories and such places. You have to remember that for us, the Industrial Revolution is long gone. You know, Pittsburgh was cleaned up and the steel mills moved out. <laughs> but in, in northern England, this was all brand new. This was a complete sort of reorganization of, of society. It was the movement from an agricultural uh, society to, to uh, a factory-oriented society. And there were a great many problems. Um, as a result of which, uh, you know, in the 1830s, 1832, there was a reform bill passed which extended the right to vote uh, to males who who owned at least 10 pounds worth of property. So that in the in the 1830s, there was a there was a great deal of representation given to people living in industrial areas and a decrease in the power of those people who, who lived in the South in the agricultural areas. So when Gaskell was writing about North and South, she was writing about sort of two different ways of looking at life. A Northern way of looking at it, which was being determined by working class people in factories, as opposed to uh, an agricultural life in the, in the South. So that's almost exactly so, the, the same split that happened here, where we had kind of an industrialized north and an yes, agricultural right. south, and right, very different right. political needs, well, or, gov or at least governmental structural needs. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, a few times when I, I talked about north and south to some of my students, they thought I was talking about the U.S. <laughs> I had to remind them, oh, no, there was, there was a similar kind of division in England, and writers like Dickens and, and Gaskell and Charles Kingsley and uh, even Disraeli were talking about those things in fiction. I'll be darned. So... I came across something when I was reading, and I thought, oh, I'm going to wait and ask Larry about this because I didn't, I didn't understand enough of the context. And, and one of the things that, that came across, I want to get this right, was that our understanding of, I, I want to say workhouses, was, oh, it's, it's a, a place where it's kind of like almost a forced labor thing. But it was actually more than that. It was that if you, or maybe it was the poorhouse, that if you couldn't pay your bills, you and your family, the father, the mother, the kids, everybody went into this kind of a home for people who didn't have the financial wherewithal, and they were separated, so the families yeah. were split up, so there were families who would actually rather remain homeless 
than going yeah. to this. Well, the workhouse, yeah, you know, well, you know, people are supposed to work. They're not supposed to be dependent on, uh, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a very conservative point of view. I, I don't want to get into, you know, an American politics no, here. No, but, but, but in Victorian politics. But it's a, it, it's a, yeah, I mean, it was an effort to, on the one hand, to keep people from starving. On the other, it was an effort to keep them from starving by making them work. And they were supposed to be made unpleasant enough so that nobody would want to go there on his own uh, and just simply sponge off off the government. So if <laughs> the problem, from their point of view, the problem was if you made these places too pleasant, then they might be more attractive. <laughs> Uh, so you you deliberately make them un, un, unattractive, hoping that people would go to some lengths not not to live there and not to work in them. As though it was a choice. Um, and oh. so there was a you know a choice. I don't know whether I'd use that word or not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but because of the conditions in these places, uh, socially forward-looking novelists like Dickens. You know, attacked them and tried to reveal the to to a population of fairly, you know, the well-to-do, the people who who made the decisions, who ran the government and and such, to make them more sympathetic with the lives of these people, and to uh, to eliminate some of the abuses that these these kinds of structures imposed on people. What do you know? Do you have any awareness of of when we say workhouse, what kind of work the people were expected to perform? I mean, was it like Oscar Wilde breaking rocks, or was it something actually useful? Useful, uh, yeah, probably in some sense useful. They might pick oakum, for instance, um, or you know, do that do that kind of thing. It was pretty menial, right? Um, repetitious, meaning you know. It, again, the idea here was. It's supposed to to give you some some sort of relief, but at the same time, you don't want to make them attractive because right. <laughs> you don't want people drawn to them. And they were they were funded to some extent and run by by the parish in which the workhouse appeared. Ah. Yeah, you, know, you remember that the Anglican Church is a state church, and it was divided. The, the country was divided into into parishes. Well, and that and that yeah. brings up another thing that I didn't, I simply didn't have enough information to understand completely. Miss Gaskell's husband is Unitarian, so he, he was a Unitarian minister. Yes. So he is not Church of England. Right. the The country, you know, was officially Anglican. It's a state church, and still is. But there were also other denominations active, but couldn't draw any income from from the state and the unitarians were were an important uh, an important denomination particularly up in the north and in Gaskell's case uh, and that's where most of my knowledge is I don't know a lot about you know, the, the uh, relationships among the various denominations that that existed there but the the, the non Anglicans were always referred to as dissenters, the meaning word. that they right. they dis, they dissented from the from the official Church of England position. And the Brontes' dad, he was C of E, but he was also, at least in his younger years, he was considered an evangelical, which I don't think directly 
links to when we talk about evangelical Christianity in the United States? No, not at all, necessarily. It was different, but I thought it was... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, he just he just would have had some leanings that would have been, say, closer, and some practices that might have been closer to Methodists, for instance, or to Presbyterians, than to the than to the Anglican Church itself. But uh, you know, he was, as far as I know, he remained within the Anglican Communion. Yeah, and that makes sense because his wife was Methodist, or was at least raised Methodist. So yeah. that that would have allowed him that kind of leeway. Oh, that's interesting because I know it was. Reading some of the letters back and forth between Charlotte and Mrs. Gaskell, it was real interesting to see how the religious stuff played out, because in her younger years, Charlotte was, she was a pip, and very outspoken, uh, especially on religious stuff. And I think meeting meeting Elizabeth Gaskell was an enormous benefit to her ability to mitigate some of her more harsh judgments about people's religious leanings. And, and, I, and I assumed that it had a lot to do with, with Gaskell being Unitarian, because that's... Well, and Gaskell was very broad-minded and accepting. Yes. She, uh, <laughs> I mean, you could read her novels, I think, without ever guessing that she had any religion at all. Wow. It was not a topic that she really discussed. It, 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 it's what, what you get from Gaskell is, is a kind of broad, loving humanity, rather than a denominational... Um, Emphasis. Well, and that seems to me to kind of sum up my my interactions with the Unitarian Church. I I can't address much about this issue, but don't don't confuse modern American Unitarianism necessarily with nineteenth century British Unitarianism. Mm, true. Um, there they have, I suppose, many similarities. But one 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 question I thought once I would try to explore is just what it meant to, to be a Unitarian in 19th, century, in 19th century Britain and how Gaskell would fit into that context. Uh, and I, I found it to be a, a really <laughs> difficult sort of issue to, <laughs> to sort out. It seemed like a really interesting time, actually, to be in and watching religion. Well, yeah. I think it would have been, because, you know, later in the... In the in the century, uh, there was a resurgence of Anglo-Catholicism, um, in which the Anglican Church split into its sort of three levels of high, middle, and low. Uh, low being more evangelical, middle being pretty broad, and uh, Anglo-Catholic being Anglicans who are almost Catholics but not quite. Um, John Henry Newman was one of the, the leaders in the Anglo-Catholic movement, and he eventually became a Catholic, of course. Right. And the poet John Keeble wrote a series of poems about the Christian year, and he too was a high church Anglican. People like Dickens probably would have fit more in the, in the broad to low category. Mm-hmm. But there was, a, there was an old saying about the, the, these three levels, uh, low and lazy, broad and hazy, high and crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, this is just uh, like overpaid, oversexed, and over here. Yeah, yeah, and the you know the up the the high church Anglicans, as I said, were in theology and in practice were everything but Catholic, except that they didn't use Latin much. Uh, the broad church was deliberately designed to include 
most of the population. Below church were were close to Methodists and Presbyterians and other uh, other dissenters in their in their theology or lack of theology. My sense of this is that you know the broad the broad church was was set up, or the theology such as it was was established uh, to in, was deliberately vague to allow most people to fit in the, into that category comfortably, and so. If you if you went north, you were more likely into Manchester, for instance. You were more likely to come across, you know, people who were who were angry and uh, not particularly interested in religion, or if they they had it, it was you know broader church or low church. Right. Uh, if you went down into Oxford, that's where you tend to find the the high church population. Well, down in the South. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's why, you know, Newman was a member of what was called the Oxford Movement. So now that brings us back to books. So, Elizabeth Gaskell. She wrote, she didn't just write progressive, socially focused stories. I mean, she wrote, she wrote a lot of different kinds of fiction, and she wrote articles, and, and then she also wrote the biography of, of Charlotte Bronte. Right. But North and South is the one that seems to be from from just a kind of a casual view of the internet, and I'm I'm sticking there because that's that's where a lot of the people who listen to the podcast also get information. They get book re- recommendations and things like that. North and South seems to be probably the the most easily or the most frequently accessed book of hers, and I'm assuming that it's because it's probably a book that is easily accessible and easily understandable to a modern reader with no specialized information. But I don't know if that's true. I don't know if people have missed something that she wrote that they might find even better. And that was one of the reasons why I thought it would be interesting to have you you come on and talk, because you know her her canon so much better than than anybody else that I know. Well, the, uh, the one that I think people would find appealing, they haven't seen the TV version of it already, is Cranford. Cranford is a is a book that I think your your readers would probably enjoy. It was one of the ones that was serialized on what is it, Masterpiece Theater. It was published over a long period of time as separate stories and then Gaskell brought them together and published it as a book. And it's it's really good. The thing I guess I would advise is that if you'd seen the TV serial based on it, don't trust it. <laughs> Read the book. What they did on TV was to bring together characters and situations from several other Gaskell stories and put them into Cranford, where they don't really belong. You're kidding. That's ridiculous. No, I'm not. That's what they did. So if you, I mean, if you see the TV, the, the, the series, the TV version of it, you probably enjoy it, but it's not really what Gaskell wrote. Yeah. So, you know, you need to, you need to get hold of a copy of Cranford, and there, there should be plenty around in public libraries. Oh, sure. And it's a, it's a really entertaining book. It, there's nothing terribly serious about, you know, the themes. She's not trying to reform the manufacturing system or not portraying a, a young woman who's becoming interested in a sort of Darwinian career, as she did in uh, Wives and Daughters. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, but North and South is the, 
is the is the big one that was uh, that was serialized. And I think I t- I guess I tend to think they did a pretty good job with it. I liked it. Oh, well, that's good to hear. There, you know, there are some some things I might disagree with a bit, but you know, on on the whole, I I think it it's well done and and pretty well represents the the characters and the themes of the piece. One of the things that probably everybody who watches it notices is that there are two dialects at work there. That our character from the south comes north, and she and the northerners, the northern manufacturers, have trouble understanding each other because they come from two different cultures, <laughs> and they have to learn to to adjust to each other. And the fact that those two cultures, in part, is mirrored in the dialects of English that they speak. So they actually were accurate with. Because they so so often it's just like here, you know, you get the American accent that has no regional tones to it when you're watching TV right. or film. Right. And I've noticed watching the BBC feed as well that it's. I mean, I I was lucky enough to be able when I was twenty, one, I guess. We started in London and we went up through Oxford, and then we stayed in Yorkshire. We went to Haworth and we, we stayed overnight in an old farmhouse in Yorkshire. And, then up into Scotland, and then we came down the east side. And so we got to hear, I mean, it was like a Henry Higgins trip. It was fantastic. Yeah. And but you don't and, hear that on TV. Well, in the, the North and South tele- televised version of that novel, they really did use those two different dialects. Margaret speaks Southern dialect, the, the standard English, the, the English that we're used to hearing when we tune into Masterpiece Theater. Mm-hmm. You know, the language of the received, British received standard is what it's called. And John Thornton and Mrs. Thornton and John Thornton's sister and those working, working people up in Manchester, they speak the Cheshire dialect and have a different kind of accent. And it's, I kind of imagine Gaskell speaking that way herself. She, she, for instance, Gaskell probably would have, or might well have said clemmed instead of starved. Uh, she might have said mither instead of nag. She might have told whining children to stop mithering. I'm going to start uh, using that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we happen to have, we happen to have good friends up uh, who live, in fact, he taught. He was a school teacher, and he taught in Nutsford. Uh, and he took us. We we stayed long periods of time with them, and toured sort of north with them. And they talk that way. Awesome. They do not speak the way people around London and Oxford and Cambridge speak. They speak that. about mithering, and and their 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 whole you know their their vowels are very different from the vowels of those people who speak in the south. Right. Um, and Gaskell knew that, and she used that linguistic device to show a separation between Margaret and uh, John Thornton, who who don't understand each other. They don't understand each other's economic point of view. They don't understand each other's culture. They don't even understand each other's words. I love it. Oh, I love it. That's such a well, it's such a great device, but it's also, I mean, it's nice that it's a great device and everything, but it's also real. Yeah, it is real, and it still exists. You want to remember that Yorkshire was part, you know, going back into, into history now, um, Yorkshire was, was part of the Dane Law. It was where 
the the uh, Vikings uh, settled when they were allowed to settle in the northeastern section of England at the time of Alfred the Great. And the Vikings, you know, fought, and and they finally signed a treaty, Treaty of Wedmore, I think, which allowed the Danes and the the Swedes to settle the northeastern part of England, and the rest, the southwest, was was reserved for the the native Anglo-Saxons. And so the speech and the vocabulary, the, the sounds, the phonology in the northeast is very different from the phonology in the southwest, simply because, well, not simply, I guess, but <laughs> because of the difference between these two, these two related dialects. They're both Germanic languages, but they, they separated at some point in history, and the Vikings speak one kind, or spoke one kind of, of dialect of Germanic, and the Anglo-Saxons spoke another dialect of Germanic. And as those two dialects developed over time, you know, they developed, they, they came together so that you can, you know, somebody from Yorkshire can come to London and know what's going on, understand what's being said to him. Right. But the, 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 the speech patterns, to some extent, the vocabulary, the phonology are different. That's so interesting. So when was Alfred-ish? Like, is pre, well, pre-1066? Eight, 800s. Yeah, okay. I tell you, when I was in school, nobody talked about the Vikings as anything other than big guys with horns on their helmets, and it was a joke. And as yeah, yeah. I've grown up, so much of the impact that their travel had on modern history, you know, the when they went across the ocean and came over to this continent. I mean, the crazy things the Vikings did, I feel like finally they're starting to get some credit for it. Yeah, but you you want to, you know, again, back to north, back to north and south, and the way this linguistic issue figures in that novel, um, it, it's a device for showing the, the separation that, uh, that John Thornton and Margaret have to overcome. You know, to some extent, they don't speak the same language. In, for real, yeah. It's real. The, the difference between them is not just, you know, philosophical and geographical and that, but it's linguistic as well. She has to learn how to interpret what he says to her, and he has to learn to interpret what she says to him. That's really beautiful. In the case of North and South, she's, the, the whole theme of the novel is the inability of Northerners and Southerners to understand each other. Yeah. Well, and it's... so the fact that each one speaks a different dialect is, is a way of underlining that, that difficulty. Now, she, when you say she serialized Cranford... Was she yeah. was she doing that in Dickens? I know she did at least one book in Dickens, and she wasn't happy with it. Oh yeah. She, yeah, she published she published a lot. <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of her periodical material with Dickens. Uh, yeah, she published Cranford serially, but you don't. Have, you know, there's a difference here. Uh, she published North and South serially too, but North and South she intended to be to be a novel from the very beginning, and she wrote it with that idea in mind, with various episodes coming every week. In the case of Cranford, she just simply started, she wrote a story. She published it with Dickens, and it appealed. People liked it. So eventually she wrote another one. (laughs) And it appealed. And people liked it, so eventually she wrote another one. She didn't 
she didn't set out to write a, a novel with Cranford. It's a series of stories that tell, you know, put together, tell a larger story. I'll be darned. Was that a thing? Were other people doing that at the time? Oh, I suppose. Uh, she happened to the Cranford happens to be the one I know I know most intimately, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what an interesting um, idea. That's almost like having a TV show that over time, you know, they eventually it's done, it has an ending, and they put it out as a DVD box set. But when you look at the entirety of the show together, it creates yeah. a whole, but it's well, got those individual yeah. episodes. Well, but if you look at, you know, if you, if you make a comparison between, uh, say, a, a TV, an, an episodic TV show, which has a beginning and an end, eventually, mm -hmm. um, then periodical publication in the Victorian times is probably about as close to that as you can get. You know, she wrote North and South, for instance, and published it week by week in a journal called Household Words, edited by Charles Dickens. Uh, she intended to write, you know, up, you know, a chapter or two chapters, whatever, every every week until finally she came to the end, and then it would end. That would that would be the end of the thing. Yeah, I would compare it to Downton Abbey, except that never seems to end. It just, <laughs> <laughs> it just goes on and on. <laughs> it does. It does, and strangely enough, that the two lovebirds, even though they're married now, they can't seem to get along. Oh, no. I, you know. It's tragic. <laughs> well, of course, if they started getting along, that might be the end of the piece. They <laughs> want it to continue, so. It's true. It's but, so you, true. you know, you remember during the, Victor during the Victorian age, periodical publication was the, a major way in which works of literature came before a reading public. Right. You know, you know imagine a group of people <clears throat> on a, you know, in a, in, you know, maids and butlers and whatnot, you know, down in the in the kitchen after hours, uh, and somebody has picked up a copy of Dickens' periodical, you know, Household Words, and one of the people in that group can read, so he reads the story to the others. Mm. So you've got, you've got uh, reading being done uh, in the country uh, by people who can read, and then you've got reading being done to other people who can't, be re who, who can't read, and so the story is being disseminated very differently than it would have been disseminated in, say, our time. Right. Although now with podcasts, it's that same thing that instead of it, uh, it for instance, on, on, on this podcast, instead of it being read to people who can't read, it's being read to people who are mobile and can't hold, you know, they have a two-hour commute, and so instead yeah, of right. crashing their car... Right. <laughs> Right, but the, you know the point. The point I'm making is, that, you know, if you're going to try to study the readership mm. in the 19th century, you have to include uh, the illiterate, not just people who are st sitting there with a book in front of them or a, or a magazine in front of them, but people who are sitting someplace listening to somebody else read a story to them. That's true. The, and that... the study of study of readership in the 19th century is a is an important uh, aspect of. The culture. It did make me think, you know, that the, like the wild popularity of, of Charles Dickens and had to in some way not just be the fact that he was writing, but also the fact that he would tour and speak. Because yeah. he, he, I know he was, he was quite a, he and Mark Twain were, were very popular speakers at the time, but did Gaskell ever do anything like that where she would go and do readings or, or, or speech? I know Thackeray went around and spoke because 
uh, he even came up to Haworth, um, and and Bronte saw him up there. So it seems like the yeah, speaking no, tour thing was a thing. No, Gaskell, as far as I know, Gaskell would never do anything like that. Partly, I suppose, you know, she was she was a wife and a mother. She was making money and she was traveling a lot. She spent a lot of time traveling on the continent in Germany and England and I mean Germany and uh, Italy yeah. and France. She had friends in, in those places and she she used some of the money that she made from her her various writings to to travel. She was a good friend of Florence Nightingale, for instance. Gaskell was also very much interested in the American Civil War. She had a, a young friend considerably younger than she, I can't think of his name offhand, uh, at Harvard. And he, he sort of tried to interpret the Civil War for her. <laughs> uh, good luck. Well, yeah, good luck indeed. Uh, she, she, just, she just couldn't really get it. Uh, she was, of course, she was opposed to slavery. You know, she was on the side of the, all of those good, all the good things in England but to, to improve the quality of life for working classes and so on. So she would have had no truck with slavery. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, people in northern England, especially Manchester, where the, where the mills were, uh, were suffering because they uh, had lost the, 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 their you know, supply of cotton from the United States, oh. and so she uh, she was really you know she sympathized on, she was on the right side of it she was on the side of the angels, but she also had sympathy for the suffering those people were having because they had lost the supply of cotton they had depended on from uh, you know the United States the South. I recently read a a book a very good one by the way I recommend it to you A World on Fire which deals with uh, relationships between the United States and Britain during the, uh, during the American Civil War. And Gaskell attended a dinner and was, you know, several days at a place in Scotland where some of the leaders of the British government were, also attended, and she overheard conversations there about politics at the time and about the Civil War and the supply of cotton and so on, and I would love to know what she heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been interesting to be a fly on that wall. But there are no records of that conversation, so mm-hmm. except that, you know, in general, it what happened. was what was discussed. It makes me it makes me want a time machine. <laughs> I mean, one of the other things that I wondered about Mrs. Gaskell, being a woman, and being a wife and a mother, which in some ways protected her. Because I know there were other female writers who got a little more hammered in the press um, for, you know, being unwomanly. Did Gaskell manage to escape criticism, personal female-oriented criticism for, for her or for most of her career? Or did she get some of it, too? Well, I suppose she got some of it, but, uh, you know, she came off pretty well, pretty easily, I, I think. She she never neglected her wifely or motherly duties, as far as I know. So nobody could uh, really point a finger and. So nobody could point a finger at, at her for those in those regards. She got in trouble. <clears throat> excuse me. Got in trouble for one novel she wrote. The title of the novel is Ruth, mm-hmm. and it deals with a young seamstress uh, who you know has no money. That's why she's a seamstress. 
and she uh, has an affair with a a wealthy aristocrat, a sort of lower-level aristocrat, who impregnates her and abandons her. And Gaskell's novel is so sympathetic toward Ruth that it was condemned from uh, pulpits around the country at one point <laughs> because essentially she was she was defending this uh, abandoned young woman who, not so incidentally, had been put in this position by by a lower level aristocrat mm-hmm. who rejected his responsibilities. And of course, the guy in the book didn't get <laughs> any bad press. <laughs> Yeah. And that novel was condemned from pulpits and at least once publicly burned. Wow. Um, and, you know, not even Gaskell would allow her daughters to read it and, unless they read it in her company. <laughs> <laughs> well, and again, protecting, she was, that was good PR that protected her, at least on that level. Well, I mean, good PR for the future. I, I doubt that many people at the time cared. That's interesting. I think that may have been the book, in fact, that she and Charlotte bonded over because Charlotte was writing Shirley at the time. And, of course, Anne had already written and died, but had already written um, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which she'd gotten attacked for because that's the... I haven't, I haven't finished it yet. It's the woman whose husband is so completely debauched that she leaves him voluntarily <laughs> with, with the children and goes off and sets herself up in, in the hall and... And it's shocking because she seems happy to be away from him. And how could yeah. how could that be? <laughs> Those books seem very it's very modern to me. The 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 plot line behind Ruth and Tenant of Wildfell Hall, they kind of stand out from from the rest of the books as being a little to to the way it feels as a modern person. It feels like that book is is way forward thinking from from what was generally accepted fair at the time. Well, yeah, I suppose, you know, they probably were. Um, Gaskell certainly was. I, I can't say much about uh, about uh, Bronte, but Gaskell was, in many respects, way out in front. And not attacked for it. That That's what makes her, that's what makes me really, really intrigued about her just in general. She seems like such a, such an interesting person in her letters back and forth where Charlotte were were also fascinating. And that was the the last thing I wanted to ask you about. With the 24-hour news cycle that we we live within on on television and the and the internet and and then all of this kind of crazy social media stuff that we read about on on Twitter and on Facebook and the things that kids do to each other that just seem so outrageous and cruel and horrible comments that people do these kind of drive-by blog postings where they'll leave a comment on a blog that's really mean and just, they evaporate. I had thought that that was really a modern ill and something that was not just exacerbated by the speed that we can communicate with each other and the anonymity that we can hide behind on the internet, but I, I really kind of had been living under this idea that this was just new and that it's a uh, another example that society was breaking and it made me very sad. But then after reading what happened after Elizabeth Gaskell's biography of Charlotte Bronte came out after Charlotte was dead, the uh, editorials, the uh, critics, and 
the letters to the editors that were flying all over England after the biography came out, it was shocking. People were attacking each other in editorial columns. People who claimed to have known Charlotte or her father or her husband or her sisters were making these outrageous claims and, and really saying snarky, snipey, cruel things publicly about her family and specifically about her father. And it just, it's made me kind of feel like we haven't come so far <laughs> as I thought, which is a good thing and a bad thing. But, but is there, do we have a basic misunderstanding about social interaction that occurred in the Victorian world? Because we look at our world as being so technological and so fast, and we we just don't understand how things worked back then. Because I feel well, like my head got screwed on straight after I read this biography and saw how this all worked. Well, you know, what we look back at were the Victorians, you know, the publication of newspapers and periodicals and the, the use of steam engines and, and travel by train and so on. You know, they went through what we're going through now, only with things that we're so used to that they don't really uh, seem unusual to us. Uh, Charles Kingsley, for instance, wrote a wrote a, a piece about riding on a train, and oh, it was just whizzing along, just ter- going terribly fast. Well, it was probably going about twenty miles an hour. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what? But for for him and for his that generation, you know, weekly newspapers, daily newspapers, the the uh, speed of travel across, back and forth across the Atlantic, so that you know, Charles Dickens would write a story and it would be published in America within weeks. Um, you know, all of this was just the world seemed to them to be spinning out of control. Mm. Well, when we look back at that, we don't see it spinning out of control. We think it's pretty sedate. Mm-hmm. We're, we think of ourselves as spinning out of control. But, you know, two generations from now, when they look back at the Internet, for instance, what will they, what will they say? It's probably been replaced by something else. Yeah. Well, and that, I guess it's also the, the thing that I found so curious was that, you know, I mean, my vision of Victoriana is kind of, everybody's sitting around with lace collars on and drinking tea with their pinkies up, which I know is unfair. It's unfair, but it's a part of it. But then there's this, the the snarkiness that I was seeing in the, the newspaper stuff, this idea yeah. that it was okay to comment on someone else's private life in public seemed to me to be kind of outrageous. And it didn't, I didn't have any place to fit that in to yeah. my vision of stuff, but it must have been to, I mean, I know gossip has been around forever, but, but this was, you know, basically publishing gossip out there for God and everyone to see. And I found that so, so remarkable since it was like, it was like watching Twitter going back and forth and watching somebody have this argument in in the the evening edition of the newspaper over a couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, that human nature hasn't changed a lot. We've, we've got maybe better ways of, or faster ways of expressing it. <laughs> <laughs> More steady. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it hasn't changed that much in a couple of hundred years. Well, and I can tell you the truth. Our spelling and punctuation were just as bad back then. Twitter has not killed it. 
the, the stuff that oh. I read was <laughs> pretty pretty curiously uh, punctuated and spelled. I felt I felt much better personally after seeing all of that. Oh, but Larry, this has been marvelous. Thank you so much for talking to me. If we if we do if we do Cranford or if we do North and South on the podcast. Do you think you'd be interested in, in coming sure. back and chatting again? Sure. I'm always interested in talking about Gaskell. Oh, good. She's, <laughs> she is an interesting... I have really enjoyed what I've been learning about her. She's fascinating. And I yeah, think, well, uh, a modern woman should, should have a deep appreciation of Elizabeth Gaskell. <laughs> well, and that's what it seems like, is that... And that's why I had said to you before, I wonder if it's just that people... You know, the context for North and South has been lost on them and without understanding like the the very plain to see once it point once it's pointed out to you that these people do not speak the same language and yeah. that is the 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 fulcrum upon which everything hinges once you get that piece of information then you go oh well now i want to read the book and now i'll understand it or with ruth you know knowing that that sucker got burnt that's enough to get <laughs> some people to read a book you know it doesn't take much more than that what, it's been banned? Yeah, so, I want to read that. Yeah, but don't make the mistake in thinking that Ruth is a really modern novel, because it isn't. It's a very Victorian one, but it deals with a problem, right. a social problem that Gaskell was very seriously concerned about. Well, speaking of modern problems that I've been concerned about, I actually broke down and made, you will laugh, I made a Victorian recipe for cough syrup yesterday in desperation. <laughs> <laughs> You left out the opium, I suppose. I did, but I did put in whiskey. Well, you know, the Victorians used to sell opium as a child quietener. I, I think I approve. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's they a They had this, this kind of mixture which had, which had opium in it. It was supposed to allow the child to, sp to sleep through the night. <laughs> I, I'm sure it worked very, very well. <laughs> Perhaps that explains a few things about some of the characters I've been reading about lately. Ch childhood opium eaters. Wow. Well, if uh, I, I can, after the last three nights, I seriously can understand why someone might consider. And even though I could understand, I did not feed my children opium. I just want to make sure that everyone understands that no children were harmed in the production of this podcast. I hope, however, that you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Larry Uffelman and, uh, and learned a few things that you didn't know about the Victorian era and about Elizabeth Gaskell. And uh, I hope to bring you more Elizabeth Gaskell in the future on Craft Lit and Just the Books. Thanks so much for listening. Take care. Bye.